I wish I had a British accent. Is that, is that kind of coveting wrong? Uh, blessings on you, Summit Church, at all of our locations. Um, I successfully survived my 40th birthday this week. And uh, so I, I, on Wednesday morning, I looked in the mirror and I said to my wife, I, 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 said, I don't look 40 years old, do I? And she said, no, but you used to. Uh, so uh, that's not, she didn't really say that. Um, I want to thank you. So many of you have just been so kind, just the words that you've said and um, things that you've, um, just, we have one of those generous churches on the planet, and I mean that. Um, in fact, when, when I got here on Wednesday morning, our, um, our staff greeted me with a, uh, a cake. Um, it, well, you know, the book that I wrote last or earlier this year was called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. This was the cake they had waiting for me. Um, so... The girl that made that is now unemployed, um, but she is very creative, so you might want to try to hire her if you're looking for somebody. Um, but I just, uh, I'm very grateful for, um, for you all. We are nearing Summit Church, the home stretch in our series, the Ephesians 5, um, on relationships. The small group study guide for this week, our fifth week, we got one more week um, next week, um, but our small group study guide for this week is on decision making. Um, what I am going to give you this weekend is a general vision for the family and the home and some principles that come out of that vision that will provide you with a framework out of which you can make some of the most important decisions about your family. Um, now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this message discussing how you go about making day-by-day -day decisions like, you know, should you take job X or Y, should you live in location A or B? Uh, I'm not going to do that, but uh, I'll tell you this, a couple things. One, in the fall, I do plan on doing a little mini-series, I hope to, um, that'll give you some of these principles for how to discern the will of God um, in a day-to-day -day context. Um, the other thing I'll tell you is uh, on our First Love page, summitrdu.com forward slash first love, um, the supplemental um, things that we provide will give you some of these kind of tools along with the things we're giving you for your small group and Later um, in the summer, um, our Gospel-Centered um, Marriage Seminar Series, um, there's going to be one coming up that's all about decision-making, and you can get some more of those practical tools there. So, um, but I'm not going to deal with that a whole lot. What I am going to give you today is going to be crucial, though, I think, in helping you make and think through major decisions in your marriage, or even whether or not you should get married. If you're single, what I hope you'll see today is what you really ought to be looking for in a spouse if you do get married. Because um, you can't know what qualities to look for if you don't know what God's design is for the home and his purpose is for marriage. You see, the ancient view of marriage was that marriage was primarily functional. It, 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 it gave you economic stability. It, it, it was a way that you would have children so that they would take care of you in your old age and perpetuate your name after you were gone. Um, so you would prioritize. If you're a man, you're going to prioritize a, a woman whose family was wealthy and a woman who had good birthing hips. That would make sense if that was your purpose. The modern view of marriage is that marriage is about romantic fulfillment. So what you, you look for is the person who completes you, the person who just makes your heart flutter and makes all your dreams come true. And you're just like, I want to wake up every day with this person because it's just endless, um, infatuated bliss. What Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that we've looked at every single week is that neither of those things is the primary purpose God has for marriage. There are a lot of benefits of marriage, but the primary purpose God had for marriage is preparing us for heaven. And that leads me to perhaps the biggest point for our non-married community in this series, 
Whether you are married or not, God's goal for what he's doing in your life is the same. That goal is Christ-likeness. Now, he uses different means to get us there, but his goal is the same for us. Now, I told you that marriage and biological family are not ultimate. Christ and the church are ultimate. Earthly marriage is just a shadow of, of our most ultimate union, which is our union to Christ. And our biological family, as important as it is, points us to our ultimate eternal family, which is the church. Paul says, Ephesians 5, this is the mystery of marriage and the family. So whether or not you are in a nuclear family right now or in a marriage, what God is doing in our lives is the same. He is preparing us for our eternal marriage to Christ and our eternal family, the church. He's just using different means to get us there. Um, now, really quickly, uh, uh, one word about sources in this series. Um, you know, sometimes when you're, when you're speaking, it's a little cumbersome to say, hey, this idea, you know, I get from this person over here, this is where I learned this. Um, sometimes there's a lot more behind what I'm saying, and you might feel like I fly over it at about 30,000 feet at 70, you know, 7,500 miles an hour, and you're like, I just, um, you, you will find, we, I put the transcript online every week on my blog and then on our sermon page that has a full um, documentation of where things come from, where you can go for deeper study. Um, and so you might want to check those out because it's going to, you know, I've told you before, I, I've only had two original thoughts in my lifetime, uh, and neither of them were that good. Uh, and so everything else I'm learning from other people. Uh, originality for me is simply the ability to forget where you got it from. Um, so even the things I thought were original turn out not to be. So you can find um, just all these things that may help you in your further study there um, on, on the transcript. Ephesians 5 verse 21, hope you found it by now. Ephesians 5.21, we've been in this passage every week. I hope it's good and scarred up in your Bible. Um, but let me read it, um, read it with us, the first few verses again. Wives, verse 22, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, I pointed out to you in the very first week that when somebody wants to diss the Bible, this is always one of their go-to verses. I see it on TV all the time, like, oh, you can't possibly believe the Bible. It actually says, and then they'll quote some version of this verse. Um, well, first, I want you to understand um, that God's word to us is good. God's word is given to us for our good and for his glory. And inevitably, you are going to find things in the word of God that you're not going to agree with. And when you do, you're going to have to make a decision. And that is, are you going to revise what you believe based on what God's word says, or are you going to revise God's word based on your preconceived notions of what you think is right and wrong? Don't be ignorant and, and think that we're the first people in the world to ever be offended by the Bible. Um, the Bible offends our culture in some very unique ways, but the Bible is an equal opportunity offender of offending all generations and all cultures just in different places and different ways. And you've got to make a fundamental decision. I'm not claiming that my interpretation is 100% correct all the time by any means, but I am saying there's got to be a general approach to the Word of God that says, this is your Word, it is for our good, it is for your glory, and where it says one thing and I think another, you're right and I'm wrong, Right? So you, you, that's, that's one little passing comment. Um, the other thing that I told you is you have to really pay attention to the context of this verse, and most people don't. 
the context of this verse is this verse, verse 22, comes right after verse 21, uh, in case you're bad at math. Um, but verse 21 says this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The word submit that is used in verse 22, when he tells the wife to submit, is the same one that's used in verse 21. In fact, in Greek, the sentence in verse 22 reaches back to verse 21 to borrow the verb through a very complex Greek structure that I do not have time to explain to you this weekend. But the point is that the command that is given to the woman to submit is a specific application of a principle that is given to all believers in verse 21. Submit is a military term, which means to submit your agenda to the greater whole. In the military, you don't ever respond to an order by saying, I don't really work for me. Now, that's not going to be good for my agenda and the purposes that I have. No, you submit your agenda to the, to the purposes of the army and you follow that agenda, even if it means it costs you your life. So when Paul tells the husband to lay down his life for his wife, he's taking this concept of submission and say, it's not about you, it's about, it's about the purposes of the whole. So Paul is making a specific application to the wives of a principle given to both husband and wife. Both husband and wife are submitting to each other just in different ways. And you can't ever forget that. Which brings me to a second point. It is equally wrong to deny, however, in this passage, that men and women are not given specific differing commands to follow here. The woman is told in this passage to submit twice. The man is told to submit once. The wife is told to submit to her husband, verse 21, by submitting herself, verse 22, to, and her agenda to the man and following his lead. The man is told to submit to his wife, verse 21, by functioning as her head, verse 25, like Christ is of the church, and laying down his life for his wife, like Christ laid down his life for the church. Now, let's unpack those, uh, those more. Ephesians 5, 23. Man is called, look there in your Bible, you'll see that man is called the head. The head. Scholars point out that the word head can imply one of two things. The word kephale in Greek could either mean source or it could imply authority. In actuality, head, kephale, means both because one implies the other. The source of something is typically its authority. And for example, if I were an English teacher and we were in English class and we were looking at a poem and we were talking about the poem and what a particular phrase meant, and you're like, well, I think it means this. And I'm like, well, I think it means this over here. Um, and you and I are going through why we think that. If the author of that poem walks in, then our interpretation <laughs> ceases because the author is there and they are the authority on what they wrote. In fact, author and authority share the same root word because the author of something is the authority. Right? So you see in Genesis 2, if you hold your finger there in Ephesians 5, flip all the way back to Genesis 2, which is the first book in the Bible, um, turn there. If you do that, hold your finger in Ephesians 5 because we're coming back. All right? You see in Genesis 2, if you read the account of man's creation, you see that when God created the woman, he made her from the man. Right? He didn't just make her independently, he made her from the man, then gave him the responsibility to name her both of which give him a clear leadership responsibility in the relationship. God had put man in charge of naming the entire creation. You ever wonder why God did that? I mean, why did God put man in charge of naming the creation? Is it because God was tired and out of creativity? And he was like, oh, after building the subatomic particle, I'm just out of ideas. 
And so, Adam, you need to name some things because I think you're fret. No, of course not. God gave man the responsibility to name the creation because naming yields a shaping power. Naming is an authority. Naming implies a headship. So Adam names all the animals, and when God made the woman, verse 18, verse 23 says he brings her to the man so that he can name her. That's important. Let me give you five leadership roles the man was given to lead in right out of Genesis 2. Right, five things you'll see in there that man was supposed to lead in. Number one, provision. Provision. The man already had a job that the woman was brought into. Man in verse 16 is already keeping the garden. Verse 18 is when she's created. Now, girls, just, you know, Uncle JD here, that's, there's some great insight in that. If the dude cannot hold down a job, right, if he's lazy, if he's a terrible student, if he's ever won a Halo tournament, Okay, I'm telling you, I would not mess with him because God brought the woman into a place where the man was already providing. Number two, spiritual leadership. When the woman was brought into the world, the man already had a relationship with God. Verse 16, chapter 2, says that God had given the command not to eat of the forbidden tree to the man before he created the woman in verse 18, which means that after the woman was created, man had to relay the command to her. The first man was given the privilege and the responsibility of leading his wife into a relationship with God and explaining God's ways to her. Number three, he was to lead in romance. Verse 24, after the woman is created, God says to Adam, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. The man is the one taking the initiative. The man is the one leaving and cleaving. He is the one inviting her into a stable home where she will be safe and protected. In fact, the first recorded words of mankind in the Bible is verse 24, a love poem that the man composed of the woman. And the reason I know it's a poem, because in Hebrew it's written in verse form, which means it's a poem, and Adam says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. By the way, there is no possible way that's all he said. We're talking a perfectly made woman built by the hand of God. First time man's ever laid eyes on her, she's completely naked, and you're telling me that's what he said? There's a lot more in that that God just did not choose to record for us because the Bible's written for everybody, okay? Um, but, but he composed a love poem. He's taking the initiative in romance. Um, number four, he was to lead in protection. When, the, when God says he should cleave to his wife, he's becoming one body with her. Paul picks up on that in Ephesians 5 and says he should love his wife like she's part of his own body and like you take care of your own body. That's protection. In fact, Paul's going to go on in Ephesians 5 to say that he should lay down his life for her to protect her, which leads me to number five. He is to lead in self-sacrifice. He's to lead in self-sacrifice. The model for all of this, Paul says, is Christ who laid down his life for his bride and leveraged all his power to serve and to protect and to exalt and to bless her. Men, if you want a job description and you want a way to evaluate how well you are doing, you should map these five things out and just see how well you're doing and leading in them. I was talking to one of our church leaders the other day, a lay leader, who was explaining to me that his wife and he were having um, trouble getting pregnant. They, 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 they believe that God wanted them to have children, but, but it's just not, not happening. And he said, he said, here's what we're doing and how we're praying about this. And then he just says, he says, you know, we've have determined that if, if God is, doesn't give it to us this way, 
He said, you know, I've heard about the, the sex slave trade and how many girls from a particular region of the world, how many of them end up in this slave trade. He said, we're going to adopt from that region of the world. He said, because he says, he says, I realize that that's maybe what God is doing is, is he's giving us an opportunity. What better way to leverage our family than to rescue people from the slave trade by adopting them? And as I'm listening to him, I thought, that's a man. Because he is doing exactly what God put him here on earth to do. He is what we call a servant leader. A servant leader. I gave this definition to you a few weeks ago, and a bunch of you guys didn't write it down. And I'm giving you grace because I'm giving it to you again. All right, pen ought to be coming out right now. Servant leader is someone who takes initiative for the benefit of others. A servant leader is someone who takes initiative for the benefit of others. And what you see is that this is where mankind, men, males, have failed mostly over the years. Is that we've either not taken initiative, period, or we've taken initiative for the benefit of ourselves. We were to be servant leaders, which means that we were there given leadership to take responsibility and initiative for the benefit of others. The woman in Genesis 2 is called the helper. The helper. Now, the word helper in Hebrew um, is a very difficult word to translate. And it's not a good translation in English to say helper because helper in English has a very diminutive term, tone to it, doesn't it? Like daddy's little helper. Um, you know, like my, my kids, when they come to me and they're like, daddy, can we help you do something? I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, go get the hammer. And so they go get the hammer and I'm like, okay, beat on the ground for a while. And they, you know, because they're not really capable of doing anything. And some people read that word helper and they think, well, that's, you know, that, that's got to mean that men do the real work in the world and women make the coffee, you know, kind of like a, a sort of like a madman view of the world. But that is not at all the implication of the Hebrew word etzer, which we translate as helper. Here's how I know that. Etzer is a word that occurs frequently in the Bible and almost every other time it refers not to the woman, but to God. Like a lot of the verses that you and I love from the Psalms, God is our helper and our help and our strength and our deliverance. Help and deliverance are etzer. I can assure you God is not a gopher who doesn't have the ability to help us and only knows how to get the hammer so we can beat on the ground with it. So when we say God is our help, we mean that there are things that God has that we lack. We are insufficient. God makes up the gap. This is what I'm about to say is overstatement, but I'm doing it to make a point. If anything... Calling woman the etzer, the helper, implies a superiority in her, not him. Because it means that he is incomplete and he is insufficient without her. Back in Genesis 1.26, it says, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God took the two genders and he divided up his attributes into the two genders. So that the two of them together would be a better reflection of the image of God then would one gender be by itself? God put part of himself that the man needs, that he's incomplete without, into the woman. So the two are necessary and they are interdependent. The two of you are not exactly the same. If you were exactly the same, then one of you would be unnecessary. In fact, in Genesis 2, there's a very interesting disruption in the flow of the narrative after God creates the man. After God creates everything in Genesis 1 and 2, he gives the, the phrase, and it was good. It was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. Then all of a sudden you create the man, and he's like, oh, not good. You're supposed to notice that, not good. So then what God does, he puts man to sleep, he makes a woman, and then he brings her to the man. If he had made another exactly like the man, then that would have been, oh, not good, oh, not good, not good. But he made the woman differently so that when the two were together, the two of them together would be good. If she had been just like him, 
right? One would be unnecessary. God made the two genders to be a more complete presentation of the image of God than one of them alone. And he did so by making them complementary. For a while, it became very popular that gender was merely a sociological construct, that male and female are exactly the same, just with a different plumbing system. But almost nobody believes that anymore. Biologists have demonstrated that every cell in our body is stamped either XX or XY. Our differences are literally stamped down into our cells. God did not, God did not take one generic body, screw in two different plumb, set of pipes to them, and just call that two different genders, as if we could just change the piping, pump in a few hormones, and change our gender, even if Duke University is willing to pay for it. And that's just not how you could do that, because it goes all the way down to our core. Genesis 1.26 says that from the beginning, God made them male and female. I read an article recently about how boys and girls from their infancy, before you know, society has had time to influence them, approach problems differently. For example, one of the, the examples they used, um, you put an obstacle in the path of an infant boy, the boy will knock it down. You put the same obstacle in the path of an infant girl and she will go around it or she will complain about it. Um, I, I'll let you interpret that how you will, okay? But that's, that's what the article said. Um, girls like complexity. Infant boys do not. When jazz music is played, the heartbeat of a six-month-old girl speeds up. There is virtually no effect on the heart of the boy at six months old. From these differences come some of the greatest blessings and some of the greatest challenges in marriage, you know that. I've told you this before, if you've been around here for a while, one of the greatest pieces of advice I got when I got married was one of my mentors sat down, my future wife and I, Veronica and I, and she, they said, you gotta understand that in this marriage, he's like a dog and you're like a cat. And I was like, well, what, you know, what does that mean? He said, well, he looked at my wife, he said, how do you make a dog happy? And she said, I don't know, he said, you do three things, you feed it, you praise it, and you play with it. If you do those three things, this is gonna be a happy man. They looked at me and said, how do you make a cat happy? Nobody really knows. <laughs> and whatever works one time probably ain't going to work a second time. He said, so you're just going to have to go into it with that, that understanding. Now, listen, I know that's a stereotype. And I know plenty of marriages where that doesn't apply. There are some marriages where the, girl, where the woman is way more into sex than the guy is. But the stereotype comes from somewhere because God made us differently. Feminist Carol Gilligan, who is not an evangelical by any means, said in the book, In a Different Voice, she said, listen to this, men see themselves as maturing as they separate. Women see themselves as maturing as they attach. Men feel they achieve maturity when they become independent. Women feel like they are becoming mature when they become interdependent. Now, here's a question, which one of those is better? Is it better to feel mature as you're becoming interdependent or is it better to feel mature as you're becoming independent? Which one's better? Neither, because both of them are good. The two genders are a more complete view of the image of God than would one gender be by itself. And that was God's intention. If the two of you were exactly the same, one of you would have been unnecessary. Ancient Jewish rabbis used to point out that God did not take woman from man's head to rule over him like the feminists say, but he also didn't take woman from man's foot so that he could rule over her like the chauvinists say. He didn't, take, he didn't create woman from man's front to lead him, nor from his back to follow him. He took woman from the man's side to complete him. 
Not only were men and women created differently, we find they were cursed differently. By the way, if there were any question as to whether men and women were created differently with different roles, the differentiation in the curse should settle that. Tim Keller points out that in Genesis 3, when God cursed the man for his rebellion, what was the curse given to man? His headship over the world was cursed. The world, God said, would now rebel against his rule. The ground would frustrate him. God's curse of the woman was different. God said to the woman, Genesis 3, that desire you have to complete your husband, that's going to become a desire for your husband, and he will rule over you. With the fall, listen to this, our gifts became idols. Masculine independence became autonomy and then tyranny. Feminine interdependence became absolute dependence or codependence or even masochism. And that ranges all the way from a girl who just wants a guy to take care of her. She wants a father figure who's just going to take care of her because she didn't feel like she can take care of herself to a girl who, who puts up with abuse because she is so desperate for the attention and the presence of a man. Both conservatives and feminists forget something important about the Genesis 2 and 3 story. The feminists forget that our differences can be helpful, but the traditionalists forget that these tendencies have been cursed. Listen, the Bible does not advocate a Victorian 1950s madman view of the family. Yeah, the 1950s had a few things right, but they had a lot of other things wrong. That's why the Bible challenges every culture. Saying that the biblical view of the family is this macho ruling guy and this quiet little coffee-getting wife is probably more in line with the curse than it is with the biblical ideal. In fact, here's a very important observation that you do not hear made very often about Genesis 2 or Ephesians 5. Very few details are given in Ephesians 5 or Genesis 2 for that matter about what headship and submission actually look like. Paul says, God created man as the head of the marriage and the woman submits to him. But Paul does not go into any detail about what that actually means. Genesis 2 doesn't either. That's intentional because it looks different in different relationships based on the personality of the two people involved. You see, when a lot of conservatives, like me, start to apply this passage, you'll hear them start going out of the text. They'll start to say things like, well, what this means is that the woman's got to stay at home and not work. All right, well, what about in Proverbs 31, where the woman is very proficient at her job and makes thousands of dollars? Oh, what this passage means is that women should raise the kids while the man just focuses on making money. All right, well, why don't you read into the next chapter, Ephesians 6, where it talks about the discipline of children, and look at the first word that's used when it comes to discipline of children. Fathers. Fathers are the one who were to lead in the discipline of their children. Oh, well, what, what, what this means, Ephesians 5 means, is that women should mow the grass and the women should cook. What? And where do you get that out of Ephesians 5? What this means, listen, headship and submission are going to look different in every marriage. And I can't tell you exactly what it's going to look like in your marriage. I'm just going to let you figure that out, all right? My job is to stir the pot. Your job is to figure out where, you know, how, how it works. But I can tell you a few things submission does not mean. And then I'll give you one that it does. Okay, here's submission does not mean. Submission does not mean the inferiority of the woman. It does not mean the inferiority of the woman because everything in Genesis 2 screams equality. They're both created in the image of God. Paul in Galatians 3.28 would make that crystal clear. He would say in Christ there is absolutely no hierarchy of any kind whatsoever. That the woman is told to submit does not imply the first shred of inferiority. 
We went over this a couple weeks ago. Jesus was fully God, yet he voluntarily submitted himself to the Father who was also God. Did the fact that he submitted to God imply an inferiority in his part? No, because God could not be inferior to God because that would make him not God anymore, and God cannot cease to be God and still be God, right? So the fact that he voluntarily submitted himself to the Father was not an assault on his dignity. The fact that the woman is told in Ephesians 5 to submit to the man is not an assault on her dignity either. On the contrary, it makes you more like Jesus when you do it. It does not mean, number two, the dominance of the man, as if she existed as a serf in his house to cater to all of his whims. I've told you this before. If I am to be the one that lays down his life for his wife, that means that most of the disagreements, 97.4% of the disagreements in my house, I should voluntarily lose. Because headship was not given to me so I could decide where we go out to eat and what color the carpet should be and how we spend our days off, right? Man was told to serve and submit to his wife by laying down his life for her. She was told to submit to her husband by submitting to him. Who's got the harder task? I'm going to say it's the man who's going to lay down his life because that means any power he has, he's using it to leverage for the benefit of his wife. And his leadership is characterized by that question I gave you on the second week. Remember the question? Remember it? How can I serve you? My leadership is all dominated by that question. How can I leverage any power I have? How can I leverage it to serve you? Submission does not mean, number three, unconditional obedience by the woman. A lot of people misread Ephesians 5, and it says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. That does not mean submit to your husband as if he were God, but it means submit to your husband as a way of serving God. And what that means is that if your husband is ever telling you something that is clearly contrary to the word of God, then you would disobey your husband and obey God. Like if he was telling you to do something immoral, um, like sell drugs or something that was sexually perverse or, or abusing you. Paul tells us in Romans 13 to submit to the government, uses the same word, right? We'll submit to the government, you know, we submit to the government as a way of obeying God, but if the government ever tells us to do something against the will of God, then we disobey the government and obey God. Same thing is true in in Ephesians 5. It does not mean, number four, independent decision-making on the part of the man. It doesn't mean independent decision-making on the part of the man. Remember that God put various attributes into each gender, which means that I, as a husband, am incomplete without my wife. She's got a whole different set of filters that complete mine. Now, again, not every guy is like me, but I tend to be very emotionally detached. You know, something will happen to me, and I'll be like, you know, um, like my wife will ask me, well, how did did you feel about that? I'll be like, I don't really know. I haven't thought about it. She's like, how could you not think about that? You know, three days later, I'll be like, I was actually kind of hurt by that. Yeah, I was mad. I was really mad about it. And she'd be like, how could you be mad and not know it? How could you be hurt and not know it? That's because, again, stereotype, that's because if you cut open a man's head, what you usually find in the place of his brain is a waffle with these various compartments because we kind of seal things off and one thing doesn't touch the other thing. You cut open a woman's head and what you find is not a waffle but this big pile of spaghetti. One thing's connected to every other thing. And so, you know, how things are working with the kids and the husband and the work and my relationship with mom and all that kind of stuff, it's all interconnected, all right? W- what that means is that we are different and we, which of those is better? Which, is it better to be compartmentalized or is it better to be interconnected? Neither is better. I'll give you a little observation. You can test this out if you're into leadership. I read a lot of leadership books. Professionalism 
In the last 50 years, professionalism was primarily um, described in masculine terms. To act professional means you're totally, you know, disconnected from everything and you're just kind of, all right, that's professionalism. What's interesting is if you read the last 10 or so years of leadership literature, you'll notice this explosion and recovery of female values that are appearing in leadership saying these are really important. You know, I've got a whole list of them here on, the, on my transcript of books that are just these groundbreaking leadership books that are taking traditionally feminine values and they're showing how important they are in leadership. All this means is my wife's perspective is crucial. And often, I mean, how many husbands find this? Her insight is more insightful than mine. I cannot tell you how many times that happens in my marriage. My wife sees something about a situation, I just, not even on my radar screen. That means it is only a fool of a guy who takes this principle and starts making decisions without the, the counsel of his wife. If she tells you, don't get the second job because it's gonna hurt your relationship with your kids, listen to her. God made her that way. He made her to see things you couldn't see, and if you disobey that, you're a fool. It doesn't mean, number whatever number we're on, that women should not have the highest leadership positions in business or politics. Let me give you real quick here. Ephesians 5 and Genesis 2 are both given in the context of the home, and ideally where both partners have the gospel as their center. Now, Paul in some other places in the New Testament is going to apply this principle to the church, but those are the only two places where this kind of headship relationship between men and women is to be normative. Only in the home and only in the church. When this principle of headship is enforced outside the home, not only is it unbiblical, it's dangerous because all the other safeguards the Bible puts in place are removed, like gospel centrality like the fullness of the Spirit, like covenant loyalty. Those are not in place. So this principle means that in no way, or excuse me, this principle in no way means that a man should never work for a woman or that if you're a man, you should resent working for a woman because it's just not right. It doesn't mean that women cannot or should not occupy the highest places of leadership in society. I plan for one of my daughters to be president of the United States of America. I'm already planting that vision into them now and you will all vote for her when she gets to that place, all right? I mean, it doesn't mean that. You ever seen one of those stunt you know, shows where a little warning will come on the bottom and be like, you know, warning, do not try this at home? Paul would put a warning label on this passage that would say, warning, only try this at home, because it's not something he's put out into society because all the other safeguards are not in place on it. Um, it is not number, what is six? I can't remember. The man has power to leverage over his wife. Doesn't mean that the man has a power to leverage over his wife. I pointed out in the, on the second week that the first word in verse 22, this is very important. The first word is wives. You husbands, you get out of your wife's verse. This is not yours to apply to her and demand that she obey it. All right? You don't like her in your stuff. She doesn't like you in her verse. This is between her and God. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, very conservative Bible interpreter, said after studying this passage for years, what I can tell a guy is if your wife is not doing what she is supposed to be doing according to this verse... All you can do is pray for her and try to live in a way that earns the submission of your wife. You gotta leave that between her and God, all right? So if she's not doing what she's supposed to be doing in verse 22, men, this is not yours to demand. I mean, maybe you could leave your Bible open on the pillow to Ephesians 5 every night. You know, I won't, I won't say anything about that. Maybe you could play this sermon over and over again, you know, but, 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 but it's not yours to demand, it is hers to, to give. Those are six things or whatever that's, that I know that submission does not mean. Let me give you one thing I know that submission does mean. 
Submission does mean that the man breaks the tie in a split decision. It means the man breaks the tie in a split decision. I've got a couple of, an, of, of examples of this from my life, but one of the best I've ever heard, um, Tim Keller in his book, Meaning of Marriage, which I would highly commend to you. Uh, Tim Keller talks about the fact that um, back in the late 80s, he was a pastor in Hopewell, Virginia, and there was an opportunity to plant a church in Manhattan, in Manhattan down in, in New York City. Now, those are two very different places. And um, after discussing it and praying about it with his wife, he felt like they should do it. She felt like they should not. So they prayed about it again, and they fasted about it, and they spent a lot of time discussing what they should do. And at the end of that long time of fasting and praying, he felt like they should do it, and she felt like they should not. So finally he said, all right, fine. If you don't feel like we should go, then we won't go. And she looked back at him and said, oh, no, you don't. You are not putting this on me. God gave you this leadership role, which means you've got to cast the deciding vote. You vote yes, I vote no, you get to vote twice. That's what that means. And so believing it was in the best interest of his family, he moved his family to New York City, and then the rest is, is, is kind of history. That's what submission actually means. Now, I'm going to tell you, you can ask Veronica, who is in this service, the number of times that has happened in our marriage, I can count on one hand. With part of my fingers blown off, I can still count it on one hand. It's just not something that happens on a day-by-day basis. It just means that there are times when there is a split decision and the responsibility to decide what is in the best interest of my family, God lays that upon, he lays that upon me. And people who say, well, we'll just work it out, we'll just figure out how to come to consensus. Yeah, but you know, in any, in any relationship, that doesn't always work. It's like a dance. In a dance, somebody's got to lead. If two people are dancing face to face, they can't do exactly the same thing without running into each other and ending the dance. They end up having to dance side by side and not together. The movements cannot be identical or equivalent. They have to be complementary and harmonious. The lead role in the dance of marriage God gave to the man. C.S. Lewis says that the physical dance of sex corresponds to the relational dance of marriage. In the act of sex, C.S. Lewis said, man plays the role of initiator. He moves toward the woman. The woman plays the role of receiving the initiative of the man. We are given corresponding roles, Lewis says, in how we relate as husband and wife. Now, these are just parts that we play. It's not some statement of superiority or inferiority, which is why Lewis, in his inimitable way, goes on to say, the crowns that men are are given to wear in marriage, he said one is made of paper and the other is made of thorns. Thorns because he lays down his life for her like Jesus did. Paper because he's just playing a role in his marriage, not because he is superior. Now, that's about all I can tell you about what submission does and doesn't look like. Honestly, I cannot tell you what it was going to look like exactly in your marriage. You're going to need to take these principles and wrestle with them and have a long discussion and just work out what it looks like in your marriage. I want to spend the last few minutes that I have after giving you that just talking to the guys specifically about what this means for them. Now, admittedly, in the next few minutes, I'm going to talk more to the guys than the girls. And if that bothers you that I'm going to do it that way, well, just look at Ephesians 5. You'll notice three verses for the girls and six for the boys, all right? So I'm just being biblical. I'm spending a whole more time on the guys and the girls just like Paul did, so take up your argument with Paul. Um, also, I will tell you this. Um, my wife, Veronica, and two other um, wives of leaders in our church had this 
remarkable discussion that is raw, unfiltered, and highly entertaining that is on our website on the First Love page where they talk about what this looks like from a girl's perspective. And so you can go there and just watch that and be highly entertained, and you can see what gospel-centered, God-loving, um, high-spirited, high-capacity females, how they are interacting with this passage. And so that'll maybe fill in some of the stuff that I don't get to today. Guys, you were given five areas to be a leader in. Remember those? You write those down? I hope you did. Let me talk about a couple of them. Romance. Romance. First of all, college-age single guys or young professional guys, I do not mean to get off on a soapbox or to be too hard on you, but I've told you this before. We have raised a generation of guys who don't really lead in anything, including this. They got no courage to ask the girl out, no courage to state your intentions, you just prefer to coast along, be in what we call a friendationship, or do what, you know, what I've referred to as the sneak-a-date. Let's just see how things work out. Maybe get some sex along the way. We're friends with benefits. That's not a man, that's a boy. A man in Genesis 2 is characterized by one who takes initiative. And girls, I'll just throw this out there. If he does not have the leadership capacity to lead and state his intentions and take the initiative in romance, I'm thinking he's probably not going to be a leader in the rest of your life. And I just don't think it's the kind of guy that you probably ought to look for. Married men. (laughs) I'm going to interpret that in the best possible way. Um, Married men. We never give up the responsibility to keep romancing our wives. I am still the leader in romance. Now, I will admit to you, I don't do a great job in this, but I'm trying. For most men, their wife is more like a trophy that they take in hunting. You know, in hunting, men, once you, once you shoot the deer, once you, you know, have captured the deer, then, then that's the end of the work for the most part, right? And that's how a guy is, is, is you know, you've taken, you've captured, and you've secured her, locked her down in marriage, and then you're like, it's done, and I'm just going to coast along. I have determined that I can never stop competing for the affections of my wife. I was good at it when we were engaged and were dating. I was really good at competing because I knew I had to beat out all these other losers, right? But, but now after I became a husband, I started to just kind of take it for granted, just coast along. Now, I do not think that in a thousand years my wife would ever be unfaithful to me. I, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that I have to continue to compete for my wife's affections the way that I did when we were dating, because I want to make it ridiculously impossible for some guy to come along and out-woo me in how he treats her. Uh, well, one of my um, uh, counselor friends gave me this piece of advice years ago that's really helped me. He said, you've got to become a student of your wife. You've got to learn how she, what, what, what turns her on. You've got to learn how she feels love, because it's not the same as how you would, would do it. And then he gave me this concept. Some of you have heard this, and I don't have time to spend a long time on it, but it was a concept of the five love languages. Have you heard this? It's a really popular book. And basically, the love languages concept is that we tend to speak and receive love in a language. And it's like any other language. The person that you're talking to has to speak the same language, or they're not going to hear what you're saying. I could you know, yell up here all day long in English, but if you only speak Spanish, then that's the end of it, right? No matter how good I'm saying, it doesn't, it doesn't translate to your ears. And so Gary Chapman, the author of this book, identifies five different love languages that people have. The first one, um, words of encouragement or words of affirmation. That's where just hearing words means a lot to your spouse to say, I love you. You're doing a great job. Some people give and receive affection that way. Uh, a second one he identifies is acts of service. You just serve them by giving them help that they didn't ask for. Guys, vacuuming the stairs, doing the dishes. Um, a third one, gifts that are given. 
You just bring your wife a bouquet of flowers after work. You buy her perfume or, or clothes. That's a language. Physical touch, hugs, holding hands. I'm not talking about foreplay here. I'm just talking about touches of affection, right? Uh, Five, spending quality time. That's where just full undivided attention just speaks volumes. Now, here's the catch that most people don't get. How you speak and receive love is not always the way that your partner is going to speak and receive love. And you've got to learn that. And you've got to study what's their language, uh, for me, when I got married, my love language is kind of two or three, well, I kind of all of them, but um, it, it's, um, it, you know, it's words of affirmation, uh, little gifts, and occasional acts of service. You want to make my day? You come up here, tell me I'm awesome, give me a gift card, and then, I, I don't know, wash my car, and I'll just love you forever, all right? Well, so I thought, well, that's how I'll love my wife, you know, occasional gift, occasional act of service, but a lot of words. And it's just not, it wasn't communicating with her. And I had to learn that there were different ways that she would you know, the one that is not my love language is touch. Don't come up here and touch me. I'm not going to like it, all right? I'm just telling you. Um, you know, just, I just prefer, like, let's just all stay in our little quadrant. You know, you stay over there. I'll stay over here, and we're going to be fine. Tell me I'm awesome from over there, okay? Um, uh, but hers, you know, just the occasional reaching out while we're watching TV and, 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 and touching my wife, that it was in a way that was obviously not designed to move from one base to the next, but just the affectionate touch just did all kind. It's, it's becoming a servant to her and learning how I can lead in romance. And guys, if you quit doing that, what happens is I'm not excusing her having an affair. I'm just telling you, you should make it really difficult. You're responsible to lead in romance. Guys, this also means that you're responsible for where your relationship is. I mean, how many times do I see this in our office? Some woman drag in some guy who don't want to be there, but their marriage is in trouble. Now, there's a lot of things I haven't done right in my marriage, but I will tell you that when my wife and I needed help in our marriage, it was me who arranged the counseling. It was me who even took care of arranging some of the child care for it. Because I knew that where my relationship was, was my responsibility. I'm the leader in romance, and I answer to God for it. Let me talk for a minute about spiritual leadership. God gave you the responsibility for your family, for which he is going to hold you accountable. I would just make sure you see Ephesians 6, that when he starts talking about the discipline of the children, he addresses fathers. Fathers, are you leading in the discipline of your children, or is that something you've turned over to your wife and just like, keep them off my back? That's not what I do. I make money for the family. You raise the kids. That is wrong, it is unbiblical, and it is setting up your kids for certain disaster. You are the one that God is going to hold accountable for that. That's what spiritual headship is. It's responsibility. I love the words of Tony Evans, that great African-American preacher who said, spiritual headship is essentially God telling the woman to duck so he can punch the man. That's what headship is if you really want to get to it. Guys, that leadership is a sacred responsibility. You are the servant leader. You were there to take initiative for the benefit of others. The way I've said it to you is this, spiritual headship is not license to do what you want to do. It's empowerment to do what you ought to do. That's what spiritual headship is. Now, single guys, listen, if you become this, if you become a leader in these five areas, I cannot explain to you how attractive you are going to become. That, uh, come on. I got the loud amen a minute ago. I just set you up. Let's try that again. I will not explain to you how attractive you will become. 
Thank you. All right. Because this is what she was created for. And it makes you in the image of Jesus, who is the most attractive person in the universe. And here's the other thing that just burns in my heart for this, man. I know that as God heals the man, the healing of the family and the healing of society will just follow. When you look at Genesis 3, you'll see that humanity's fall, watch this, happened through a failure of the man to lead. You ever look at the Genesis 3 situation, how it went down? It says, look, read it later. It says that here's the woman, Genesis 3 opens up with the woman having a conversation with the serpent. And it says that the man was, in Hebrew, with her. Now, with her in Hebrew doesn't mean he was with her like over there doing something else. With her means he was standing right there beside her. He was given the responsibility to protect her and to lead her spiritually. But he knew that God had said, the day that you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. And Adam was like, I wonder if that's true. Here's the, he's offering the, the, the fruit to my wife. He's listening to this conversation. The dirt bag says, why don't I just let her take the fruit? And if she drops dead, I'll know it's not true. So he's like, I don't know. Well, go ahead. <laughs> you know, and he's, it's not that he did anything wrong. He just didn't do anything. He wasn't there. It wasn't a sin of commission. It was a sin of omission. How I know that's true. What was the first question God asked when he came looking for the couple? Adam, where are you? Where are you? You could really translate that, Adam, where were you? Where were you? Where were you when you were supposed to be leading and protecting? Let me tell you that conversation should have gone. Should have gone the serpent coming up to the woman. And as he's starting to get into his sales pitch, maybe like, whoa, wait a minute, snake. What are you doing talking to my wife? My wife doesn't talk snakes. My wife and I were just on our way over to the tree of life where we were going to have a succulent buffet of the tree of life. And you're here talking about this trashy tree of knowledge of good and evil. Not in a million years, snake. Go back in your hole. That's how that conversation should have gone down. The fall of mankind happened not through a sin of commission by the man, but through a sin of omission. And it is still the question that God is asking to men, Adam, where are you? Where are you? Where are you in the leading of your children? Where are you in the church? My friend John Bryson says we got a generation of males that just never grow up to be men who never take the role as servant leaders. We've created a, a new name for this group of guys who, they're not boys because they're you know, post-pubescent, but they're not men because they're not leaders. We've got a new name for it, we call it dudes. <laughs> the man-child, boys who shave. Most guys, he says, feel like they're good husbands if they provide food and shelter for their families. That's the standard. He said, possums provide food and shelter for their families. Is that really the standard of what we've given for what a, a man is? A true man is a servant leader, leading spiritually, romantically, taking responsibility. Boys blame, men own. Boys take, men give. Boys complain, men figure out. Boys pout, men endure. Boys wish, men do. Boys start, men finish. Boys stiffen their neck, men bend their knees. The world fell into sin through a failure of a man to lead. But God saved the world by sending a new man, a second Adam, who would lead where the first Adam followed, who would serve the church where the first Adam served himself. That, of course, was Jesus. Jesus displayed more manhood in the manger than Adam did in the garden. In the garden, Adam looked like a man, but he acted like a boy. In the manger, Jesus looked like a boy, but he was doing the most manly thing imaginable. He was fighting for the ones that he loved. 
And that means that salvation will come to the world as men begin to follow the second Adam and they become like him. Listen, every sociological study done points to the fact that the leadership of the father is the greatest determining factor on how the kids turn out. Tony Evans, the, again, the African-American preacher, just, he just said, I can't, I can't ever say it like he says it, but I'll tell you what he says. He said, as goes the man, so goes the family. As goes the family, so goes the church. As goes the church, so goes the community. As goes the community, so goes the nation. So you want to change the nation, you change the community. You want to change the community, change the family. You want to change the family, change the man. God, give us a generation, listen, of men who will lead as servant leaders the way that God has called us to lead because I'm telling you, when that happens, it all begins to flow. And you say, well, how can you do this? How do you do this? Well, again, the clue is back in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The gospel is the power for your marriage. It shows you a God who served this, you this way, a God who submitted and laid down his life for the church. And as you become more aware of who this God is, it shows you what power looks like. It shows you what love looks like. It shows you a God who is a lover. And so you become the kind of lover that he is. After seeing what Christ did for you, you begin to look at your spouse and you begin to say, what can I do to serve you? Because his question was, what can I do to serve and lay down my life for you? Paul says, or excuse me, Christ says, serve your spouse. That's how you can serve me. If you do this because of your spouse, you're going to lose motivation. That's why he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. When your horizontal service to your spouse has a vertical dimension of worship, then it becomes joy and you have the strength to endure. Marriage, you see, at its core, listen, is gospel reenactment. You're just learning the gospel. That's why, by the way, some of you resist this, because we're not naturally gospel people. The reason you resist this, first of all, is we hate the word submission. We don't want to submit to anybody, right? And so, of course, you resist this because you're a sinner. But God appointed various relationships that you would learn to submit in. The reason you resist this is because you're selfish and you want to use power to serve yourself. So God appointed various relationships where you would play the role of servants. If you're single, that's why this still applies to you. Because you might not be in a marriage, but you're in a bunch of other relationships where you got to learn to submit, where you got to learn to serve. The point is not marriage. The point is Christ's likeness. The point is gospel reenactment. For many of you, listen, what is missing from your marriage, the reason none of this makes sense is because the gospel is missing from your marriage. You don't know God who is a lover, so you've turned your lovers into God's. You don't know a God who is a servant, so you've turned other people into your servant. And I'm, well, this is what's missing from your marriage. And you getting connected to Christ, you trusting in Christ as your Lord and Savior would do more for your marriage than 10,000 sermons or seminars or books would ever do. Because it would reconnect you to God, and that's the decision some of you need to make is you need to receive Christ, you need to surrender to him, because that's why your marriage is falling apart, or that's why your dating life doesn't work, or that's why it's all in shambles, because you're not connected to the source. And if you've never done that, you ought to do it today. Why don't you bow your heads with me if you would, and let me pray. With your heads bowed, if that's you, if you have never trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, I would invite you right now to surrender to him and to receive him. It's just a very simple surrender. Jesus, your Lord, receive what he did as your salvation, what he did on the cross to pay for your sins. Maybe you got questions, and so what you'll need to do is you'll need to ask the person that invited you or ask one of our pastors. We're always here at every campus. 
Father, I pray this would be the beginning, a new beginning for many of the marriages in our church, many of the families. As we begin to reenact the gospel, as men begin to lead as they have been commissioned to lead, God, heal our community, heal our church, heal our nation. Do it, God, as men begin to take leadership, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.